I would invite you to uh, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, I believe the Pew Bible number is uh, 1018. And uh, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? 2 Peter chapter 1, from the first verse through verse 11. This is the Word of the Living God. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So reads the word of God. You may be seated. My Scottish grandfather, who went home to be with the Lord uh, many years ago, he was an all-in kind of Christian. That's just the way he rolled. Uh, He was not uh, a noisy person. He was not flashy or showy. But he was all-in. No half measures with him. You know what it's like if you think of someone standing above a body of water, just maybe 10 feet down, and they're, they're counting the cost and evaluating, and then suddenly they decide to jump. And now that they've jumped, there's no turning back. They're all in. (laughs) That was him. And so I remember one December, he came to me and he had uh, a Christmas gift. It was actually a a biography of this famous preacher. And in the flyleaf, he wrote down, Merry Christmas, be all in for Christ. And then he, in block letters, he wrote Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. 
And that word fervor there, I would come to realize years later when I went to seminary, it represents a little Greek verb, zeo, which literally means to boil up. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual boiling point serving the Lord. So that is the spiritual temperature that we are to aim for. We're not to be lukewarm. Uh, heaven forbid we're not to be aloof and, and, and cold with reference to God. But we're to be boiling hot, 100 degrees Celsius, on fire for the Lord. Well, the question is then, how do we keep ourselves hot and boiling for Christ? And also, how do we turn up the temperature in our lives in such a way that by the time we get to midway through next week, we are still hot for the Lord and boiling up for his pleasure? The Apostle Peter, he helps us here by sandwiching his call for us to be all in for Christ between what God has already given us and what benefits are in store for all in believers. God gives us sufficiency and he gives us incentives. Wow, isn't he so gracious? So, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that's a question that we often ask the kids in Sunday school, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? And, oh, I want to be a, a zookeeper, or I want to be an astronaut, or I want to be a tattoo artist, or I want to be a dog, or whatever. The answers come forward. But suppose for a moment that uh, Maple Avenue Baptist Church had an online yearbook. Maybe something like a, a high school yearbook. You know how it is and everyone gets a, a little very a terse paragraph and you've got to put in that paragraph that which identifies you. And, and something that goes in there is uh, whatever you're aspiring to. So what is your personal goal in life? And, and crucially, how does your personal goal match up with the goal that God deems is fitting for you. So suppose I gave you a, a blank piece of paper this morning and I said, I just want you to kind of fill in the blank, you know. My goal for life and living is, and then you fill in the blank. And then I also slipped a blank piece of paper to God and I said, uh, okay, you fill that out. And he fills out, what he deems to be your goal for life and living. And then I take the two sheets of paper and I put them side by side and I go, snap, they are identical. Or would I perhaps look at them and go, oh, uh, um, okay, they're not uh, exactly the same. As a matter of fact, maybe they're even quite different. What would you do if you could get your hands on that piece of paper that God would write? Well, I've got to tell you, the good news is you don't have to give anything because it's right here. It's right in this passage of 2 Peter chapter 1. God's will for our lives in a word, and an old-fashioned word, is holiness. Living a holy life. It's always been God's goal for his people right from the start. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2, 
God told Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then Peter, he, he quotes that verse later on. In his first letter, 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we could be holy and blameless in his sight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says straight up, it is God's will, you want to know God's will for your life? It is God's will that you should be holy. So God is less interested in the job that we do. He's much more interested in how we do it. God is less interested in the school you go to and the program you're in and the coursework that you have. He's much more interested in how you do what you do. And yes, God is interested in every vast and meticulous detail of your life. That is true. But it's just that he's less interested in what that is. And he's much more interested in the kind of person you are. The character that you have while you do what you do. So being all in for Christ means seeking this goal of holiness for all of life. And this passage here in 2 Peter 1, it helps us in this because in the words of verse 4, look at it, it's all about how Christians can partake of the divine nature, which is another way of saying become holy, become godlike. And it begins with an encouragement in verse 3 where it says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's given us everything that we need for a godly life. That is holiness. One time I had a, a DYI job to do down in my basement. I was uh, trying to remove these countersunk bolts. And uh, I was quite delighted because it was only a couple of weeks earlier that I had finally started to organize and arrange some of my tools. I'd inherited some from my dad and from my father-in-law, and I, I had my own little socket wrench kit. So I, I put it all together and centralized it in a box. I had the, the, the metric lined up, and I had the imperial lined up. I needed this 13 millimeter, so I got the metric row and 8 millimeter, 9 millimeter, 10 millimeter, 11 millimeter, 12 millimeter, 14 millimeter where's the 13 millimeter deep socket ah you know what that's like when that happens it's so frustrating every socket under the sun apart from that one but it's not like that with holiness I gotta tell you we're not missing some critical tool that's required to get the job done God doesn't send us out on some mission impossible with an impossible goal He's not like that. Peter says that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is a holy life. What's he given us? Well, three things in this passage, and the first of them is faith. Sometimes undervalued in itself. Faith. In verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is our response to the good news about Jesus. You place your faith in Jesus, you take him by faith, you trust in him and his finished work on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for your own personal sins, averting his own rightful wrath against those sins and at the same time amending for your sins, reconciling you to God, and thereby granting you the gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. And how is it all accessed? It's accessed by faith. We put our trust in him. But here it's saying that it's also something that God gives us. It's something that we receive because we obtain it. We don't attain it. We obtain it. It's by grace that you've been saved. But did you know that it's also by grace that you ever believed in the first place. Sometimes we gloss over certain passages of the Bible, but for instance, in Acts chapter 18, 27, it says, Apollos was a great help to those who by grace had believed. It's a grace-based faith that unites us to Jesus Christ, making the fruit of holy life possible. And so you know how it works. Jesus is the vine, and we are the offshoots or the branches from the vine. And it's only by faith that we're grafted into him so that the sap can flow from him through us and produce the fruit of holiness so that we can grow up into maturity. Therefore, without faith, holiness is a non-starter. It's like buying some big beefsteak tomatoes from the grocery store and then you bring them home and you go out to your backyard with some green twist ties and you affix them to your tomato plants, right? And wow, it looks wonderful. And the neighbors are really impressed. But it's not the real deal. It's not the real deal. There's no organic process happening here. But if you're a child of God, he has gifted you faith in Jesus Christ, and it's part of the all things that pertain to life and godliness. And notice in verse 1 that Peter, on behalf of himself and the other apostles, what does he say? He says that your faith is of equal standing with ours. What's up with that? What does that mean to us? I think he means to say that we apostles have no unfair advantage over you. If God has given you the privilege of faith in Jesus for your justification, he's given you the exact same qualitative gift that we've received as apostles. And so here's where it's all at for us. Don't ever, ever think that the faith that you possess, that your faith is some kind of cheap imitation faith or some kind of knockoff faith of the apostles. You have the same privilege as the original apostles. You're grafted into Jesus by the faith you've obtained. 
Don't entertain for a moment that you have some kind of bargain basement brand of faith, some kind of cheap imitation plastic version. No, no. The text says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles, all of whom I witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Wow. Talk about sterling silver faith. And ours is of the same precious quality. And Peter's arguing that this is what makes your holiness possible because you've become a partaker of the divine nature through faith in Jesus. The second thing that Christians need for holiness and uh, already possess is to know God. A holy life flows from truly, intimately, relationally, and palpably knowing God through the gospel. So just as children tend to look like their parents, so God's children will look like him. He is holy, so his children, they bear the family likeness and reflect his holiness. Whereas if we don't know him, we can't live holy lives. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. Because the things of the Spirit of God are spiritually discerned or known. Well, through faith in Jesus, his children, they do know him. So verse 2 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. And verse 8, don't be ineffective and unfruitful, in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we got everything we need. We got grace-based faith. We got Christ-focused knowledge. And the third thing that we need, in addition to faith and knowledge, it is an incentive to be holy that is sufficient to motivate us and it is what God has given us, namely his promises. So look at verse 4. You find it right in the text. It says, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Or to flip that phrase over negatively on its back, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. That is, God, His promises, they incentivize us towards holiness. Now, what sort of great and precious promises might He have in mind? Well, when you get to chapter 3, verse 4, He speaks about the promise of Jesus' second coming. And in chapter 3, verse 13, he speaks about the promise of a future, coming, anticipated, renovated universe, waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, as he puts it. So these promises about the future, they motivate us to be holy because I mean, we want to be ready for the return of the king. And we want to be fit for the new world, the home of perfected holiness. 
When our family moved up from Brampton to uh, live in Calneast many moons ago, when we first uh, arrived in order to begin our pastorate there, uh, one of the differences I noticed was uh, with regards to power outages. Uh, up in Calneast, more frequently, they last longer. So what we discovered at nighttime, if there happened to be a power outage, it's in the evening, uh, our family, we might be in the four corners of our house, but suddenly we would find ourselves kind of congregating in the living room and we're hunting around, you know, for matches to, to light candles or for flashlights. And, and you know how it goes when this happens. You, you just have this natural penchant to reach out and, and flip on a switch so you can find uh, something. And, and, oh, you can't do it. And you, you get on your computer, you're going to Google Hydro One, and, oh, you can't do that, you know. You get on the landline to phone, so, oh, it's not working. Nothing's working. We just don't have the power to do everything that we wanted to do. Now, as followers of Christ, Peter is saying we do have the power to live holy lives. We do. So verse 3 says, God's divine power has given us what? Everything we need. We have the power to be all in for Christ, to live holy lives. We have the faith. We have the knowledge of God. We have the multiplied promises of God. Now beware, because there are people lurking around, false teachers who abound and they claim that you are missing something that is essential, something that you really, really need in order to be unleashed in your Christian life, right? And often that's how they make a living. Oh yeah, I got this special vision for the Lord's people and I want you to have the special vision and I want everyone to have this special vision. You know, I've got the, the, the new Bible code. I've cracked the code. I have a special interpretation. I have a special revelation. I have experienced something ecstatic and I've been around people who've had the same ecstatic experience and, and you need to have that too you just got to come to the conference you just got to buy the book I got this new snake oil skin bible that's stamped with my name on it in gold leaf you know how it goes if you're going to plug into God you got to have these trinkets right one time I received a flyer in the mail and this flyer was from a false teacher telling me that I needed to find a spot in my home, even if it was down in the basement, and then create a big circle, maybe use some uh, duct tape or whatever, and stand inside that consecrated circle of prayer so that I could read the scripted prayer that I could purchase for only $19.99. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't worth 21 bucks, but for 19.99. And false teachers, they were going around and lurking in the background of Second Peter. And so Peter is concerned. If you've got Bible headings above chapters in your version of the Bible that you have in your hand, then you will notice, for instance, above chapter 2, you're going to read something like false teachers and false prophets. So Peter begins 2 Peter by saying, you're not missing anything. You got everything you need. You got all your resources, just as the apostles have, everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. 
And so for those who trust Christ, God's children, when we live lives holy, it pleases God. It puts a smile on his face. But when we don't live lives that are holy, when we're lapsing, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And figuratively, tears roll down his cheeks. And when we're tempted to think, is it even possible? Is it such a life that's pleasing to God? Is it actually doable? The answer is, yes, it is. On the basis of this passage, we can't be sinlessly perfect this side of heaven. That's for sure. So it's not as though we Christians have to walk around and, and, and feel as though we've got to be sinlessly perfect now. We have a hope that outshines the sun, and that includes a renovated planet and a renovated us when we will enjoy the consummation of our perfection. And so sometimes Christians, they walk around like sourpusses, feeling as though they're spiritual losers, but we don't need to be like that. We don't need to be burdened constantly with some kind of low-level sense of guilt. If we're pursuing holiness and we're headed in the right direction, God is pleased with us. So if that isn't happening in my life, then where is the problem? Well, it could be. It could be. It could be that I'm just not making much of an effort. And that's our second major point this morning. Major point number one, God has given you everything you need. Major point number two, give it everything you got. Give him everything you got. You see this in verse five, right? For this very reason, what? Make every effort. And again, you see it in verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent. Holiness requires diligent effort on our part. Strenuous physical and mental exertion. Yes. People ask, what does it look like in practice to live all out for the Lord? Well, this tells us it's a life in which we're making every effort to pursue holiness. A long obedience in the same direction. Holiness, it is both the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces it in your life. But at the same time, incompatibly, it is also the result of our effort. Graciously, God bids us into an experience of synergy. It's what Kevin DeYoung refers to in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, as spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. And so God's grace is not to be presumed upon as though we just kind of sit back and, you know, do nothing. To triumph in holiness requires try and umph. Don't ever forget it. <laughs> it's not enough to say, you know, well, the Lord loves me, and so I'm sure he's just going to straighten me out somehow, you know. I'm dedicated to the Lord, so I'm sure now that I'm on path, I'm just going to kind of drift towards holiness. No, it doesn't work that way. 
Trusting does not mean no trying. I'm sure you've heard the expression before that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. That expression is attributed to Thomas Edison. I read it on the plaque in the Fort Myers Museum. He was the inventor of the first commercially viable light bulb, and he went through some 10,000 prototypes before he got it right. Now think about it. If he was prepared to put in that kind of an effort for a light bulb, then surely we should put an equivalent effort in to pursuing holiness, to live lives that attract the pleasure, the imprimatur, the smile, the, the approval of the Lord our God who sent his son to save us from our sins and grant us eternity with him forever. In Andy Nassily's book, No Quick Fix, he reminds us of this popular American uh, movement that arose in the 19th century called the Higher Life Movement. Eventually it became called the, the Keswick Movement because it, it spread across the pond and, uh, and moved into Keswick, England before it came back to North America. At, at the risk of oversimplification, basically in practice, this uh, victorious life teaching, it, 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 it claimed that the great secret of holiness and endless victory in the Christian experience was resting as they called it, a passive form of just let go and and let God. And sometimes you see this kind of surfacing in, in Christian devotional literature too, don't you? The idea was that you weren't to make any effort. Don't try, just trust. Just passively let Christ live his life through you. It just has a, a ring of kind of quasi-spirituality, doesn't it? It sounds very pious to talk that way, but I'm just, I'm just being frank. That's not what Peter's saying here, is he? He's not saying that. He's saying, make every effort. Be all the more diligent. Now, I want to ask you today, are you doing that? Is that you? Would, would, would that characterize the way you roll right now, at this point, at this juncture in your life? lived quorum Deo before the face of God? For some of us, it could be that this is actually the missing link. Uh, We've got everything we need to be holy, but there's not actually much determination on our part to pursue holiness. And, And truth be told, we're actually a little bit lazy in this department right now. So what would it look like then if you were to make every effort to be holy? Well, it means going for growth, for flourishing. Do you see that in verse 5? It says, for this very reason, because you've got everything you need for holiness, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, which is moral goodness, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. A description of the holy life. And when you think about it, it it's really a colorful and, and beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus. Just, just look at those attributes for a moment. Aren't those Jesus? Holiness is Christ-likeness. 
Now, notice that we're not just to say, I believe, I've got faith, that's all that matters. If we have faith in Christ, we're not to leave that naked faith, you know, outside the door in the cold. We're to make every effort to, to add to it, to supplement it, to clothe it with goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and the queen of virtues, love. Now, we're not going to run through all of those. We don't have the time, but let's just take one of them to reflect on for a moment. Um, let's take self-control, for example. If you have faith in Christ, are you the kind of person who's making every effort to be self-controlled? Self-control means having your emotions, having your passions, your, your impulses, your desires underneath self-mastery. That's essential to living a holy life. It's one ingredient. And so Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So without self-control, we are spiritually defenseless. We're unable to keep the enemy at bay. Remember what happened in the city of Jericho and the walls came down and then what? The enemy just kind of rushed right in. And self-control is not so much something that our culture especially values or encourages us to pursue. Nowadays, it's much more about self-expression than it is about self-control. Would you agree with me on that? I think so. I don't know if you've heard about it before, but I was reading about this Burning Man Festival. It's an annual event. It happens out in the Nevada Black Rock Desert. There's normally about 80,000 people who converge, and they all show up and attend this great uh, uh, festival for I don't know how long it lasts, but, but it, it, at least several, several days. One report about it says this. They abandon all inhibition. Many wander around naked, doing ecstasy and acid, visiting the anonymous sex orgy dome, joining in fire dancing and yoga and meditation and so on and so forth, and some things that I don't even feel at liberty to read to you right now. And the organizers describe it as an annual utopian experiment in temporary community dedicated to radical self-expression. Now, I guess that not many of us have ever been to this festival before. Well, I think it's kind of like a signpost. It definitely is a form of extremism, but it's leading the way for the direction that our Western culture is going. But God calls his people not just to be people of self-expression, but he calls them to make every effort to add to your faith self-control. Self-control with our tongues. Not just to say whatever pops into her head and then just kind of run off at the mouth. I find that as I get older, I guess maybe I'm paying a little more attention to it, but, but sometimes, you know, you've lived long enough and, and, you, and you feel like you've listened long enough and now it's your time, in, in kind of a smug sense, to just shoot from the hip, you know? And, you, and some people, like, pride themselves and be able to just, just let her rip, you know? And, and who cares if shrapnel happens to land in somebody's chest? I'm just going to say it like it is, you know? I pride myself in being uh, just so frank. But 
self-control says, no, that's not the way to go. We need to speak, seasoning our words with grace. We need to speak so that we're helpful for the building up of other people according to their needs, beneficial to those who listen. Ephesians 4.29. What about self-control with our hands? Not just to do whatever feels right, not just to act on any desire, any feeling, but to let God's word determine what we do with our hands so that we're quick to use them to serve and, and to help and to sacrifice. As I came here this morning, several different people had their hands out serving me, just me, with hospitality. What a, what a, what a beautiful representation of this body of Christ. I trust that you are all on board with this. Quick to close our hands so that we might go to the Lord in prayer. Self-controlled hands. Self-control with our feet. Not just going wherever we want to go, but rather walking away from temptation when it shows up. Letting the word of God be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Self-control with our eyes. Not looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at, but instead disciplining our eyes. Or, or like Job, we make a covenant with our eyes. We're not going to sin against God. We will, we will flee youthful desires when necessary. And if we happen to see something, we will shudder in the sight of evil. And self-control with our thoughts, not just allowing our thoughts, you know, free reign, but filling our minds with what is wholesome and lovely, beautiful and honorable, things that are excellent and praiseworthy and just. Philippians 4.8. So self-control is not a very fashionable virtue. Unless you happen to be uh, an Olympic athlete, no medals without self-control, right? And so train hard, eat well, spiritually, brothers and sisters. As one writer put it, self-control is perhaps the supreme virtue of Christianity, a gritty, unwavering control of our inner beast, our passions, our thoughts, our words, our behaviors, captivated by Jesus Christ. So are you making every effort to add to your faith self-control? And what would that look like for you in the week that lies ahead? What's that going to look like for you on Tuesday or next Friday afternoon, let's say? Notice how verse 8 helps us out in answering that question. It says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's to say growing, so we're not just to add these qualities to faith. We are to seek to grow in each of these qualities, to become more loving, to become more self-controlled, to become more persevering, to go for gold in each of these areas. Again, just to take one example, let's take knowledge. We've seen that if we are God's people, we do already know God through Jesus Christ. But, but check out verse 8. It says, that we're to make every effort to increase in knowledge. As it says at the very end of the letter, um, part of the bookend that P 
Peter is using in 2 Peter, his last verse in the third chapter, chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Peter doesn't want the sheep of God's pasture to be vulnerable and overrun by false teaching wolves. How do we defend ourselves then? What's our, what's our Irish wolfhound that's going to fend off the marauders? It's our ongoing, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Reading the Bible so that we obtain bibline blood, as C.H. Spurgeon put it, I believe. Um, reading books about the Bible. Listening to quality podcasts and, and audiobooks, reading quality ebooks, and, and listening to messages about the Bible, and of course, tapping into those word ministries, those gospel focused ministries that are here in this church. All to defend ourselves against an ever ungracious and erroneous culture that is surrounding us. Let's not fake it. Our culture is not mute. It is not neutral. It is constantly peppering us. So we've seen now that God has given us everything we need for holiness. And we've seen that it's our responsibility to be all in, making every effort. But what is the incentive to do this? Well, it's that we'll get everything we could possibly wish for in terms of spiritual benefits. And that's our final point. So briefly then, just, just popping up like, like waving flags on the landscape of the, of the rest of our passage this morning, we've got these four incentives, and the first one is a fruitful life. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's quite striking, isn't it? If we neglect holiness, we're told that our lives will be ineffective and unfruitful. A wasted life. I own someone's two-volume autobiography. I was given it. And it has this haunting title, Chronicles of Wasted Time. Imagine that. Suppose you get near to the end of your life and, and somebody asks you to write a biography of yourself. And when you finish it all up, you what am I going to title that? And you decide to title it Chronicles of Wasted Time. This side of heaven, this is the only life we've got. It'll soon be gone. But the holy life is the effective life. It's the fruitful life. It's the, it's the thriving, flourishing life. And those that the Lord delights to use are not at all necessarily those who've got amazing gifts, but those who live holy lives to God's glory. So usefulness is more about character than it is about gifting. James Packer, he writes, Holiness is the sum of a million little things in a daily life. Are you trustworthy? Are you kind? Are you patient? Do you love? These qualities worked out and all the little things of life determine whether you are a blight or a blessing to everyone around you. The second incentive here is gospel clarity. It shows up in verse 9. 
It says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you're not pursuing holiness, and if you're casual about your sin, it says that you've lost your sight of God's forgiving grace. We're spiritually short-sighted. We're even blinded to the graciousness of our so great salvation. And that's not a good condition to be in. Don't go there. Incentive number three is spiritual stability. In verse 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter's saying that living a holy life not only confirms your assurance, your confidence, that you've been called, you've been chosen by God, but it also grants you rock-like stability. Not constantly plagued with doubts about whether or not God accepts you. And the fourth incentive is a rich welcome. Verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A hero's welcome into the kingdom on the last day. But that will not be the case if we neglect holiness. If we neglect holiness, then maybe, maybe we'll just scrape in by the skin of our teeth, or maybe we won't even make it at all. Because Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, what? No one will see the Lord. The pursuit of holiness is necessary. All true believers are pursuing it. It's just a matter of degrees. And yes, sometimes we fall down, but we get back up and we continue to go in the same direction towards perfection. The pursuit of holiness is necessary. It's, it's triumph that leads to the ticker tape parade of welcome into the eternal kingdom. And so these are just some of the promises that God has given us to, to motivate us and, and to make us in courage within to make every effort to pursue holiness. In closing, I just want to tell you for a moment about a couple of different guys that I was reading about. And, and there was this story in the news about an old man at home who was dying of cancer. This is down in the city of Toronto. He was living out of a condo. And uh, his granddaughter had posted on Facebook that his final wish was to meet some of the Toronto Maple Leafs before he died. He was a huge fan, right? And to make a long story short, three of these young Maple Leafs, they found out about it and they decided that they would show up at his house. And they did. They brought souvenirs. They, they gave him a Toronto Maple Leaf jersey. And 45 minutes after they left, he died. I don't know how that story makes you feel. And I mean, perhaps in part, it makes us feel a little bit happy because way to go for those young Leafs. You know, they carved out a chunk of generous time and they showed up and gave the man his dying wish. But let's get real honest for a moment. <laughs> On the other hand, it's, it's not a, such a happy story. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit sad 
that something like hockey could be so important in a person's life that that is their dying wish. That's what they're remembered for. I played hockey from four years old all the way up. I'm true blue Canadian. I love hockey, but I'm still saying it. The other guy that I'm thinking about is Jerry Bridges. He wrote a book on holiness that I read many, many years ago. It quickly became a, a bestseller. Today it's probably a, a modern classic, and it's called The Pursuit of Holiness. He died six years ago. He died at the age of 86. The blogger Tim Challies wrote a tribute to him and said this, I only met him personally on one occasion, but from that encounter I came away with two conclusions. First, he was the real deal. I had formed a very positive picture of him through his books and through hearing him speak at conferences on audio. The reality matched the picture. He was kind and gracious. He was genuinely interested in me, though there was no particular reason for him to be. At a time when he had every reason to be distracted and to turn his attention to more noteworthy people, he gave me the privilege of some of his precious time, and he gave me a few of his encouraging words. My second conclusion was this. I want to be like him. I want to be like him. He says, to that point in life, I'd encountered dirty old men, I'd encountered drunken old men, and disengaged old men, but too few godly old men. Jerry Bridges, he says, immediately struck me as a man who had committed himself to godliness and had pursued it for a long, long time. It showed, and I realized I'd be thrilled to someday exhibit the grace and the wisdom and the godliness that he displayed in his books, in his preaching, but especially in that little room where I met with him before the big conference. And then Challies ends by saying this, he was not a man known for his academic credentials. He was not a man known for his worldly accomplishments. He was a man known for his holiness and his godliness. I wonder what the people will say about you when you die. I wonder what you want people to say about you when you die. God has given us the same resources as Jerry Bridges. What will we do with them? How about triumph, being all in for the Lord, making every spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort to grow in holiness. For all things are of him and through him and to him, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for telling us unambiguously your will for our lives to be saved and to increasingly be sanctified until we're glorified. Thank you, Lord, for gifting us with all that we require to lead lives that, that plant that smile on your face, that give you delight and pleasure through the Holy Spirit. May we be resolved 
to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. In his wonderful, powerful name, amen.